Well, as a church family now, for a couple years, we've been going through the book of Romans. Fantastic book. And we just finished up Romans chapter 9, those 39 verses, that can be a little confusing or difficult or new to some. And so before we plow on into Romans chapter 10, I'm taking a couple more weeks to just help us think our way through what some of the most important implications are of this great doctrine, as well as applications for your own personal life. Because think about it, folks. God did not reveal the doctrine of election to us just to aggravate us, confuse us, or cause us to give up on praying and sharing the gospel with lost people. No way. No way. One of the most effective pastors and evangelists, because some of the pushback sometimes is, well, if you believe in God's electing love, you'd never share the gospel, you'd never send a missionary, you wouldn't Hey, settle down. Some of the very first missionaries that ever went out believed what we're preaching and teaching from Romans 9. That's why they went out. They were convinced God had chosen people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation and they would not be wasting their time to go and sacrifice and preach. But Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a pastor. You might have heard that name. Pastor in London for over 30 years. And he was one of the greatest pastors as well as evangelists. No exaggeration, Thousands of people came to Christ through his preaching and teaching. Thousands. And he personally would meet people one-on-one on Mondays almost all day long, answering their questions and sharing the gospel further. And he preached the gospel. And he believed and preached both. He believed in God's electing love and preached it. And he believed that people have the responsibility to choose either to embrace or reject this free offer of the gospel. Both. He preached both and he believed both because he believed how much of the Bible? All of it. And he would get the same kind of pushback that I get sometimes here. People would say to him, but how can you believe in both God's electing love and the responsibility of people? That people are real and they make real, free, volitional choices. How can you believe both? And he said this, shall we never be able to drive into men's minds the truth that predestination and free agency are both facts? Men sin as freely as birds fly in the air, and they are altogether responsible for their sin. And yet, everything is ordained and foreseen of God. The foreordination of God in no degree interferes with the responsibility of man. Permit me also to add that I've long ago given up the idea of making all my beliefs into a system. I believe, but I cannot explain. I fall before the majesty of revelation and I adore the infinite Lord. I've said it already, but I'll say it again today. We are not trying to build a theological system that we can fully understand and I'm most comfortable with. I'm committed as your pastor and we as a church to submitting to the Bible, all of it, and to lifting up a glorious Savior and a sovereign God. And we, when we hit points where we cannot fully understand all of it, we're called to submit and worship and say, well, all right, you are God and I am not. And one of the easiest ways to not reach that point of tension is to just ignore one or other side of this equation that we've been talking about, this rope of salvation. 
If you don't want tension and you don't want to reach a point where you can't fully understand it, just let go of of either end and just emphasize one side and put together a system if you want. But I have no desire in giving my life for a system. I love Jesus and I have given my life to a savior and a sovereign God and a glorious message. And my heart breaks for lost people like his heart breaks. And I want to have the compassion that he has. Don't say God's not a compassionate God. The fact that he's saved people for all of history as long as there's been sinful people. And intends to keep saving people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation is a huge act of mercy and compassion. And I get to be his ambassador, his mailman, bringing that good news to real people. We want to hold to all of it. And so here's what I want to do today. Last week I said all I wanted to do was drive a stake in the ground about how critical it is whenever you hit places in the Bible, any doctrine, but especially a harder one, to hold to the biblical tension and balance. Today, here's what I want to do, and I hope it encourages you, because I want to show you dignity and respect. And I want to show you how I'm not just trying to cram this down your throat. Here's my hope. I am assuming, folks, that long after I've moved on into Romans chapter 10, you will keep thinking and studying and praying and processing this. I don't want you to believe it because I believe it. I don't want you to believe it because our church believes it. I want you to study the scriptures. I want you to search and wrestle. So all I want to do today is give you three cautions as you think your way through this great doctrine. Three cautions. Because I actually want you to be like the Bereans. Did you know there's a place in scripture where Paul actually commends one city over another city? You know, Paul was a missionary, took three missionary journeys, preaching the good news of the gospel where it had not been proclaimed and planting churches and raising up elders. And he gets into this one city called Berea. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, he says, the Bereans, here's what I noticed about them that was different. And he didn't take offense. He didn't say, who do they think they are? They went back home and searched the scriptures to see if what I was saying is right. And I said, who do you think you are? I'm Paul the apostle. If I say it, it's right. Done. Boom. No, he says the Bereans were more noble-minded because they accepted the scriptures with all readiness. Good start. And they went home and searched the scriptures to see if these things be so. He lifted them up and said, be like that. Folks, be like that. Be like that. And I want you to know, I'm not trying to win an argument. This week I've been on my knees praying, God, I don't want to win an argument. I want to lift you up in such a way that you are worshipped and honored. My goal is not to win an argument. My goal is to be faithful to the scriptures. How much of them? Say it again. All of it. And I want everybody here, wherever you land on this spectrum of this theological rope, wherever you choose to emphasize, I hope after these messages that your God is bigger and your heart is more stirred for worship and you want to live for him more. That's what I care about most. I'm not interested in trying to pile up more points in my camp and get more followers in my camp. I want there to be more white, hot, passionate, zealous, all out for Jesus followers. That's what I want. To lift up Jesus in a way that he is honored and that you're stirred to live for him and say, that's worthy of giving my life for. All right, so let me give you three cautions now, assuming that you're big boys and big girls and you're just going to keep reading. But I've stirred it up a little bit and you're going to say, ah, I'm going to read some more on that. 
I'm not interested in you reading other books. Did you notice I have not, as much as I love books, I have not been holding up books and say, oh, read R.C. Sproul's Chosen by God. Oh, read A.W.P. Sovereignty of God. When I say reading, I want you to keep reading this right here. Buy some other books if you want, but I'm telling you what, this right here, if you read it, how much of it? All of it. There'll be places where you say, oh, that is not what I thought. I wouldn't have done it that way. Three cautions. Number one, regardless of what subject you're studying in the Bible, whatever subject you're studying in the Bible, keep this in mind. You will never be able to escape a measure of mystery. If you study it hard enough, long enough, faithful enough, and you study how much of it? All of it. You will reach places where you bump up against mystery. Mystery. You'll reach places where you bump up against mystery. Where you've come to the end of all that you can think your way through. You say, whew, wow. So get this. You hear me all the time say, you got to read it. You got to read this. Are you reading this? You got to read this. But now I'm going to say something that might surprise you. If mystery bothers you, if conundrums unsettle you, don't read this. And here's why. If you read this all of it long enough, faithfully enough, carefully enough, not coming already knowing what you believe and trying to find verses to prove it, but just saying, God, show me everything you have to say about whatever, you're going to bump up against some mystery. Why? Because who's the main character in the Bible? That was weak. God. Oddly enough, not us. We tend to put ourselves at the center of everything. Are we in here? Yes, and we're losers. We're in here. We're in here. But we're recipients of mercy. And if you track with us in here, we're a mess. That hasn't changed. We haven't gotten into a mess. We've been a mess. You read all of it, you're like, oh, ooh, ooh, chopped her up and sent parts of her around Israel. Ooh, ah. If you read all the way through the Bible with your children, there'll be awkward moments on a regular basis. Like, ooh, ah. Okay, kids. We want to read it all. And if you do, you're going to bump up against mystery because the main character is God. And if the main character is God and the book is about the things of God, God is infinite. And so you're going to reach some points where you cannot fully understand or grasp all there is to know. You say, Brad, does the Bible indicate that at all? Yes. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is one of those places where it says the secret, the secret things belong to the Lord. Our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children. Look what's happening there. He's saying there are two categories of things in this world, in this universe. There are secret things that belong to the Lord, our God. Did that ever occur to you? Sometimes we take this attitude. If I study hard, hard enough, long enough, faithfully enough, with enough Bible translations, I will know it all. Uh, news alert, you won't. He has not revealed it all. He has not revealed all there is to understand. Imagine how big the Bible would be if, it, if you, you wouldn't be able to carry this thing around. And even if you say, I'm going to, if God was to answer the cry of some of your hearts and download all there was to know, we'd be wiping your brain off each wall. It'd just be <laughs> cerebral matter just running down the wall. You couldn't contain it. You couldn't contain it. 
Because he's what? What's one of his attributes? Infinite. 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 The secret things of the Lord belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children. Don't hear me saying everything's up for grabs. It's just, everything's a total mystery. Hallelujah for the second part of that verse. But the things which are revealed belong to us and to our children. He has chosen in his goodness to condescend and reveal some of himself to us. Hallelujah. We're not groping in the dark and have no idea what he's like. But please don't think you are going to fully figure God out and diagram him. No, you won't. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. When's the then? Well, it hadn't happened yet. When he returns, when he ends all this, when glory, eternity begins. Oh, man, we're going to see things we're not seeing now. We're going to understand things we're not understanding now. The darkness and the dimness is going to be lifted. There's going to be clarity like we've never had before. And like I said last week, please don't hear me saying, and at that, at that point, myself and the elders will stand and say, told you so, told you so, huh, huh? And there'll be a lot of chest bumping. Yeah, we were right, you are wrong. Oh, no, I think we're all going to say, oh, my goodness. I was a little wrong. You were alone. Nobody got it right. Don't hear me saying, therefore, why does it matter, Brad? It does matter. He tells us to study to show yourself approved unto God. Doctrine matters. So in this dim time, I'm still called to study and to the best of my ability. Say, God, what are you revealing? But be humble about it. And know that this is dim time and then face to face. We're just seeing through a glass Darkly, Pastor C.J. Mahaney in his excellent little booklet, Sovereign Grace and the Glorious Mystery of Election, says this. Remember, the most gifted, best equipped minds in church history, no matter how far they dive into the theological pool, have failed to plumb the depths of election. Meanwhile, far above them, my skinny legs can only occasionally be glimpsed just beneath the surface, desperately treading water. Folks, let's be honest. We're desperately treading water here in Romans 9. Saying, God, help us to understand this. Help us to understand this. We're in the deep end of the theological pool. We're weighing over our heads, but help us to understand this accurately. And as we kick and tread water, God still calls us to hold just as tightly to this doctrine as any other doctrine that he chooses to reveal to us. And so it really boils down to this, folks. How comfortable are you with a measure of mystery when it comes to your understanding of God and salvation and the things of God? See, it's understandable. I understand. I'm a human being. Why most of us can relate to this end of the theological rope of salvation. We experienced it. It's real. I remember being convicted of sin. I remember the night I drove home with my parents and thought, oh my goodness, I've heard him talking about sin, 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 sinner. And for the first time I thought, He's talking about me. I am a sinner. I'm on my way to hell. I need a savior. And I believed and I turned from my little seven-year-old sins, whatever they amounted to. And I looked to Christ and I trusted that I could never have kept the Ten Commandments. And it was glorious and it was real. And the Bible talks about it. Whosoever will may come, but as many as received him, coming to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I experienced this end of the theological rope called salvation. It's real. Right? Everybody sitting here who is a Christian today could say, yes. But folks, 
God has chosen for his own purposes to reveal this other end of the theological rope also that most of us would say, I think all of us, I never would have thought of that. There was never a day I would have woke up and over my breakfast cereal say, it just occurred to me that all that that happened to me, it happened because God chose me before the foundation of the world that's coming to me now. Never! Ever, ever, ever. But he's revealed it to us. And so he's called us to hold just as tightly to both ends of this theological rope of salvation because we're not trying to build a what? System. We want to submit to the scriptures and follow a savior and a sovereign God. And when you hold on to both ends of this theological rope, you will find yourself stepping out of the light of what you see clearly and understand and into some measure of shadow in mystery where we bow and worship and lay our hand over our mouth and are silent and say, let God be God. But he's given us enough truth and light to trust him that he's good and he's wise and he's merciful. Even in the chapter, Romans 9, those 39 verses, he uses the word mercy and compassion five times. Don't doubt in the dark, in those mysterious points, what you know to be true in the light. He's good. He's wise. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He wants to save sinners more than you do. I didn't give my son to die for you. He did. He did. Don't question whether he's good or merciful. Oh my goodness, he is. But, but be willing to come over here and bow and worship. And say, all right, I've reached the end of of how I can think my way through that. But here's what God's word says. But maybe you're saying, Brad, okay, maybe it's just a a few awkward, random verses that are found in odd places of the Bible like Nahum. That talk about election. No. Get your Bible. And we're going to use it. Oh, my goodness, you're going to be so sorry if you don't have a Bible today. Just go ahead and say out loud, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Because here's one of those times that I don't want you to believe this because I'm saying it. I want you to see it. I want you to see it. So go. And I'm going to try to pause. I did pretty well in the first service. I wish my sweet wife had seen how good I did. Because she says, you you move too fast. You don't wait for us to get there. Do you know how hard that is to wait on you to get there? But I'm going to wait because I want you to see it. So let's go to 1 Thessalonians 1.4 in your Bible or your app. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 4. I'm waiting. Oh, I like the rustle of the pages of Scripture, but get there. Use the index in the front if you have to. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Go to 2 Thessalonians 2.13. You just got to go right a little bit. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Because God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus. You know what you just saw in those two verses? You just saw both ends of that theological rope put together. 
In verse 13, he's saying, God chose you from the beginning, but then the next verse says, how's it gonna happen? And called you by the gospel. Yes, you had to hear the gospel. Someone had to share it. You had to believe. You had to repent. You had to respond. There's an example of both verses bumped right up together. Yeah, God. God chose you from the beginning for salvation. How's it going to happen? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. If you're in Thessalonians, go left. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Hit pause and look at me. Now he's about to give an explanation that I think refutes something I hear very often on this issue. One of the ways human beings try to reconcile this truth and feel more easy about it is I hear people say, and I've, I've read it written, ah, okay, I can't deny that election's in the Bible and that the word choose is in the Bible, but here's what happened. God, because he's God, and he can see into the future and knows all things, looked through the tunnel of time and he saw who was going to choose him and chose them. Problem? The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't leave us guessing, well, okay, this, ooh, wow, he chooses, he elects. On what basis? Well, we don't know. Oh, this would make sense. We do know. He tells us. Keep reading. Keep reading. Verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, on what basis? According to the good pleasure of his will. It's his own good pleasure. And then if you're not clear on that and you're still fuzzy, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accept in the... Grace is unmerited favor. He did it according to his own good pleasure, to the praise of the glory of his grace, unmerited favor. You you don't earn it. You don't do something. If he looked to see who was going to choose him and then chooses them, you did something. That sets you apart from the rest of humanity, and it's work. You're bringing your own righteousness. Well, I got one leg up on the rest of humanity. He saw how I was going to be, I guess, a little smarter, a little more humble, a little more something, and knew, well, they're going to respond, so I'll choose them. It doesn't say that. According to his own good pleasure, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So get this, the Bible doesn't say God's choice is based on anything we do. In fact, it says clearly God's choice was not based on anything we were going to do or not do. You say, show me, Brad. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Go to 2 Timothy 1, 9. 2 Timothy 1.9. Watch how good I'm being. You know how hard this is? 
2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. In case you still didn't get it, not. He wants to make sure you understand how this happened. Because we tend to assume and think, got to be something I did. We are wired and our default setting is works. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Give me a list and I'll keep it. Show me a system and I'll work it. The Bible just blows that up regarding salvation. Look. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and, say the word, grace, which is unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You didn't do something. You didn't get his attention beyond the rest of humanity. Not ac- but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Go to Romans 9 where we started our journey with wrestling with this doctrine. Romans 9, verse 11. I'm showing you how God's choice did not depend on anything we would do or not do. Romans 9, verse 11. For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand It's like, all right already, Paul. He's going to say it again. Why does he keep driving this home? You see the word not coming up again? Because it doesn't matter how many times he says it, we still tend to think, okay, but I do this. Okay, but I did this. Okay, not, not of works, but of him who calls. Gospel of John, chapter 1. Go left if you're in Romans. Gospel of John, chapter 1. Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 12. John chapter 1 verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. Look what just happened in verse 12. Are we over here? Does the Bible teach this? Hallelujah it does. But as many, do you have to receive Christ? Do you need to hear the gospel? Does someone need to tell it to you with their mouth? Yes. And is it your choice to either say not interested or yes. But as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe. You got to receive. You got to believe. You got to repent. You got to choose to follow Christ. Right here we are in John 1.12. But he doesn't stop. Verse 13 Again, he gives you some greater insight as to what is going on that's bigger than what you experience. We experience this. We can relate to this. This is so real to us. And hallelujah, I don't want it any other way. When you get saved, it's like, oh, thank you, Lord. I feel so different. I feel so free. I feel so clean. You know you, you responded and you did. I'm not downplaying that at all. But look at verse 13. When you got saved, if you're hearing you're a Christian... Look what he says, who were born, he's not talking about physically, he's talking about spiritual birth, regeneration, new life, who were born not of blood. That means it's not in your DNA, it's not hereditary, it's not just, oh, I was born to a Christian family, like for my five kids, my dad's a pastor, duh, of course I'm a Christian. No, not duh, not of blood. This doesn't happen just because you're in the right family, not of blood, Nor of the will of the flesh. 
It's not just you decided like, well, yeah, I heard the gospel, heaven, hell, Jesus, like, duh. Nor of the will of the flesh. You couldn't just, this would not have been attractive to you. You would not have just decided this on your own. You were dead in your trespasses. Nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Somebody else can't do it for you, though mamas and daddies try so hard and get into such trouble. Folks, I'm a dad. I got five kids. I know the heartache. I know the burden of so desperately wanting to think that your kids are all saved. You're wanting to sleep better at night. But one of the worst things I think parents do is to get children to parrot a little prayer and then go around saying, oh, hallelujah. She's living like a hellion. He's living like a hellion. But I know they're all saved and on the way to heaven because they prayed the prayer. Dear God, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. Folks, people can mouth words. It takes an an act of God and a work of God for new birth. And do people need to say words? Yes. But God's word says in 2 Corinthians 5, when new life takes place and ignites, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Not are you perfect, but there's some life. There's some appetite for the things of God. This nonsense with people running around saying, oh, hallelujah, I know Freddie's saved because he walked the aisle during the Promise Keepers in 1985. He lives like a hellion, talks like a hellion, doesn't read his Bible, doesn't want to be in church, doesn't want anything to do, but we sleep good knowing he's going to heaven. (laughs) Don't hear me saying it's my job to go up to Freddie and say, you are on your way to hell, Freddie. Never mind what your family thinks. I don't do that either. But I do rattle Freddie and I ask him, I say, you know what? The way you live and the lack of appetite for the things of God and the lack of fruit in your life puts a big question mark, Uncle Freddie, over whether you know the Lord. Don't give your kids false assurance. And I used to go out into the housing projects and preach and teach. And oh, how it broke my heart. The people would come back to campus and, hey, 39 kids got saved. Of course, as you teach and preach and you say, all right, right now, raise your hand if you want to ask Jesus in your heart. Hands go up everywhere. Why? We gave them all candy and they hope we're coming back. And they like us. We're playing with them. Some of them don't have dads. Sure, put your hand up. I pray after me. Bow your heads. Dear God, dear God. And we lead them in this prayer. And we come back to campus and say, 39 kids got saved. Now, could some of kids gotten saved at that moment? But do you think 39 kids got saved? I don't. I don't at all. And that's why the church struggles so with all this. Well, we've got all these people that are supposedly saved, but we can't figure out why they're not here. And then we make up nonsense like, well, they took him as Savior, but not Lord. Shut up. The Bible does not teach two categories. Until you've made him Lord, he's not your Savior. It's a package deal. It's not like, I'd like to miss hell, but I'd like to still live my own way and do what I want to do. It's not presented that way. That was a tangent. Sorry, we got to get back on. (laughs) There's more good stuff, and that wasn't even in the notes. That was bonus. You got bonus at 945. So it's in the Bible, folks. And, And this concept of election is not tucked off in random, odd, remote places. It's just all through the scriptures. God's word calls us to hold on to both ends of the theological rope of salvation, the one that we can relate to the best and the one that we would never have thought of. But he's presented both to us for his own good purposes and there's reasons. Job 26 does not talk about the doctrine of election, but it does push what I'm wanting you to understand and sense here today about studying anything regarding God. Go to Job 26. Job chapter 26 beginning verse 7. This is an easy one. If you turn to your middle of your Bible, you're probably going to hit Psalms and go left. 
Job, Psalms. It's right before Psalms. Job 26, beginning of verse 7. He stretches out the north over empty space. Uh, look at me for a minute. There are some places in the Bible that I just call big God chapters. You ought to get there. Another reason to read how much of your Bible? Some of the biggest big God chapters are in the Old Testament. If you're not reading your Old Testament, you're missing it. Isaiah has some great ones. Job has some great ones. And yes, Revelation has some great ones. But this is a big God chapter. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his reproof. He stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding he breaks up the storm. By his spirit, he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. And how small a whisper we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Let me tell you what I think the takeaway should be from passages like that. Whatever you think, whatever you think you know about God, and put me in the same category, whatever we think we know about God, and regardless of how long we've studied what we think we know about God, and regardless of how far ahead of others we think we are in what we know about God, get this, you are never standing at the center of it all. You are always on the edges of just barely scratching the surface of all there is to know about whatever it is you think you're learning about God. Always. Because he's infinite, infinite, infinite. That's what Job is telling us, folks. Why? Because our mind can never fully grasp edges of his ways. And so whatever you think you know about God is always just a whisper of all there is to know. Now don't hear me saying, so then why bother? No, no, no. Study and study and study to make sure that your whisper is biblical. All right, so I'm holding to a whisper. Don't hear me saying, I've got the thunder and the shout because I went to seminary and I know the original languages. Boom. Hey, go to seminary, study your tail off, buy books and line yourselves like I have, and all Brad Bigney has is a whisper. But I'm called to make sure my whisper is as biblical as it can be, and so are you, not just pastors. But don't ever take the attitude, I'm standing at the center of what there is to understand about this. We're always on the edges, just scratching the surface Of all there is to know and understand. And so our knowledge has limits. And quite frankly. We don't like that. We don't like that. So first caution. Whatever you're doing. And whatever you're studying in the Bible. Just know. If you hold to the scriptures. How much of it? All of it. You'll reach a point. Where you are likely to be bumping up against. Some 
measure of mystery. Caution number two. Caution number two. Keep in mind that your human logic will never be fully satisfied. Your human logic will never be fully satisfied. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. That's going to take some of you a while. So please use the index because I don't have time now. We're going. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11. If you can find Psalms, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11. says he's made everything beautiful in its time. Also he has put eternity in our hearts. Pause right there before I read the rest of it. This is a place I like to quote. Because folks, that right there is glorious. He has put eternity in our hearts. That's what distinguishes us as human beings from the plant and animal kingdom. You're not like dogs and cats and ferns and houseplants and crystal rocks. You are created in the image of God. And because of that, you have this expansive sense of eternity. You don't have to become a Christian to get this. All you have to do is be a human being. So everyone here, regardless of whether you'd say I'm a Christian or not, you have what Ecclesiastes 3.11 is saying. Eternity is in your heart. And there's this longing and this hunger and this desire for more. There's got to be more. There's got to be more. That's why, my friend, you'll never have enough sex You'll never get it good enough. You'll never travel to enough of the right places, make the right friends, get to the right corner office in a business, keep your health in the right shape. Nothing in this world will fully satisfy. Because he's placed eternity in our hearts. And so you're longing for more. You have this sense there's got to be more. I'll tell you what you're longing for, my friend. To be in relationship with your heavenly father, dad. Your creator, father, dad. You need more than this life. That's why C.S. Lewis said, if I find within myself a desire that nothing in this world can fully satisfy, the most likely explanation is that I was made for another world. You were. You were. But watch what happens in the next half of the verse. So you got eternity in your heart, this longing for more, that wants to know, that wants to find out, that thinks there's got to be more. But look what happens next. Except that no one can find out the works that God does from beginning to end. We got two things bumping up against each other. You've got this expansive sense that there's more and you want to know more and relate to more and understand more and experience more. Great. But he just says, keep this in mind. Whatever you do experience or know or learn or begin to tap into in your understanding of God, you will never find out the works of God from beginning to end. You get some here. You get a glimpse here. You get a slice here. You learn more from scriptures. But you are never seeing the total deal. That's why the New Living Translation says people cannot see the whole scope of God's work. While you're in Ecclesiastes, jump to chapter 11, verse 5. Because for some of you, you may never be here again. So let's crinkle up two different pages in this book. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 5. 11, 5. As you do not know what is the way of the wind, or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child. Now think about it. Can you see the wind? We see the effects of the wind. 
And as man has gotten smarter and smarter, we've, we've found ways to harness its power and produce some energy. But we ultimately can't control wind, and we don't see it. That's what he's talking about. He's about to compare it to himself. As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of hers with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes all things. Do we know some of the works of God? Hallelujah, yes. His word tells us creation declares the glory of God and the earth shows forth his handiwork. Romans chapter 1 and 2 says his law is written on our hearts and we have a conscience unlike a golden retriever. We have a conscience that says there's a God, there's a God, there's a God. We, we've got a great sense, but you'll not find out all the works of God. You're not going to know all the works of God. You do not know the works of God who makes all things. So let me ask you a question. Is salvation a work of God? That was weak. I do believe it is. Therefore, it is likely that there'll be lots of it that we will understand. But it's also likely if it's a work of God, Scriptures is telling us you're never going to find it all out. You're not going to know it all from beginning to end. It's very likely if salvation is a work of God, and it is, that there's going to be some aspects of the whys and what and how and who that we just can't fully grasp. And that's where this end of the theological rope of salvation kicks in. If salvation is of God, and it is. In fact, there's a verse that says it exactly like that. Revelation 7.10 says, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You know what our problem is? We're guilty of acting like we thought of salvation. We own it. It's our pet project. We're the brainchild behind it. And we treat it like a formula. And we treat it like this thing we traffic in that we can just diagram and hand it out on little pieces of paper. Folks, salvation belongs to the Lord our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God the Father, God the Son, own it. The church doesn't own it. We can't control it. And it's very likely in all of its glorious, infinite Description that there'll be edges of it, pieces of it that we can't fully understand. Salvation belongs to our God. Well, let me put it to you this way. As we grow, here's what I believe. As we grow in Christ and walk with Christ and learn more and more and more to trust our Heavenly Father that He's good. That he's wise, that he's merciful, that he has a history of even when we don't fully understand, he has a purpose and he's good. I can trust him, I can trust him, I can trust him, I can trust him. Now there may be some exceptions sitting in this room, but I find that as you read his word, how much of it? And as you choose to by faith walk with him, I don't find a, more and more and more Christians that have walked with him longer trust him less. No, oh, just wait, they say to young Christians. Just wait. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're not going to trust them like that. No, no. There's a sweetness and a countenance and a resting that I didn't have when I was younger. Because it gets proven over and over and over and over that he's trustworthy. 
even when I don't understand it. And so I do believe a sign of Christian maturity and an evidence of greater maturity, listen how I'm about to say this, is a willingness to trust him and live with a measure of divine mystery. It's an immature Christian that has to have all their questions answered. I cannot live with anything outside of what I can understand and fathom and grasp. It has to make absolute sense to me. Don't hear me saying this is easy, folks. I was in pre-med before God called me to the ministry. I love chemistry, biology. I was going to be an architect before that. Let's draw it out, right? It matters, details. So this is as hard for me as it is for anyone. And imagine being a pastor, People ask me hard questions. And so earlier in my ministry when I had a full head of hair, I thought I had to be a theological hired gun, so to speak. You know what I mean? <sighs> Name a Bible problem, a difficulty, and I'll shoot it with a Bible verse. Tell me, tell me, throw another one up. Yeah? Oh, that ain't nothing. <laughs> There's a verse for that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's happened? The longer I've walked with the Lord, the more I've unstrapped my little holster and laid it down. Don't hear me saying I meet with people and say, I don't know, (laughs) he's such a mystery. (laughs) Hope it all works out. Yeah, that's a mess. That's a mess. Be warm, be filled. I'll say a prayer for you. No, I tell them all that I do understand, but I'm not embarrassed like I used to be to say, I don't know. But I do know he's good. He's trustworthy He's merciful. He's wiser than me. I'll tell you all I do know, but when I've reached the limits, I'll admit it. Because earlier in my, I just thought, oh, I can't say I don't know. I can't, I can't, I, I'm, I, I've got to have all the answers. And as I approached life that way, my ministry produced in my own life and the Christians around me, Christians that were very one-dimensional and flat, like a Coke that's been left open overnight because something was missing. You know what was missing? Wonder and awe. Because get this. Mystery. When you allow for it. Don't hear me saying create it. There are things that are clear in the Bible and God hasn't called us to make it a mystery. Say, well, we don't know. Should marriage be a man and a woman? We do know. Don't create mysteries where there aren't. But don't act like there aren't places where there are. Mystery feeds wonder. And wonder fuels worship. If you're that Christian man or woman who spends all of your theological energies constantly trying to diagram it and you think it's got to make absolute sense to you or you won't accept it and you end up discounting all kinds of verses, you're going to have a Christian life that is very flat. And you're going to spend a lot of it wondering why so many other Christians are so jazzed about God and salvation because it's just not that exciting to you. No, it wouldn't be if I was inside your head and the concept of your God and salvation is no bigger than what you can understand. I'd be bored inside your head too. Get out of your head. Get your head out of your head and into the Bible. I could have said something worse. Get your head out of your head. My wife's going to say, that was really good, baby. Sometimes I get home and she's like, honey, you can't say stuff like that. Please know, she tries to help me. Get your head out of your head and into the Bible, and God will get bigger. God will get bigger. And it will fuel worship. Worship. Folks, like I said, 
I'm not trying to win an argument. I just want to see believers who live with a white, hot passion for Jesus in a sense of, oh my goodness, I can't believe he saved me. I get to tell somebody else. I get to live for something bigger than houses and cars and dogs and promotions and children and grandchildren. I get to live for the God of the universe and only one life so soon it will pass. And this is all going to go away. Oh my goodness, I get to tell this story and I get to be Jesus who was compassionate towards hurting people. And he's left me here now to be him. What a thrill. I wake up every day thinking, I have a reason for living. Regardless of how boring your job may be or how monotonous or how unhappy you are, if you know Jesus and your heart's being fueled with wonder and there's some edges and a sense of edge, and yet in the places where you have enough to hold on to. I know this, this I know, this I know. There's things that have been revealed and there's things that are secret. And the combination of studying hard to know more what's been revealed and allowing some secret is the perfect combination to live fueled by worship. Trust him and love him and worship him and live for him. In my attempt to stamp out heresy, And really, that's making it sound better than it was. It wasn't an attempt to stamp out heresy. It was just an attempt to look good. They expect me to have answers. I can't say I don't know. But in my attempt to stamp out heresy, I also snuffed out worship. Because I made no place for mystery. Big things. Things above and higher. To jump back to the book of Job for a minute. Anytime you're guilty of making no place for mystery, listen to me. You're back at the ash heap with Job and his three friends, Bildad, Eliphaz, Zophar, the BEZ team. I don't know if you remember, not helpful. And they showed up and they had pat, simple answers and a formula, right? Job, duh, shut up, man. We sat with you for seven days. We watched you scrape your oozing wounds, but it's time for you to fess up. God curses the wicked. God blesses the righteous. You've been cursed. Therefore, you are wicked. Enough said. Confess what you've done. Calamity like this doesn't happen to good people. Boom. Oh, very helpful. And who did God rebuke? The BZ team. They'd made it way too simple and a formula. And they were very arrogant. And there was a whole lot more going that they didn't understand. Warren Wiersbe says, whenever you meet a person who feels compelled to explain everything, who has a pat answer for every question and a red formula for solving every problem, you are back at the ash heap with Job's three friends. When that happens, remember the words of the Swiss psychologist Paul Tournier. We are nearly always longing for an easy religion, easy to understand, easy to follow, a religion with no mystery, no insoluble problems, a religion in which contact with God spares us all strife, all uncertainty, all suffering, and all doubt. If you're going to study God and the things of God and you're going to read the Bible, how much of it? all of it, you're going to bump up to a measure of mystery at some point. As you study, keep in mind, you'll never find out the ways of God from beginning to end. Your human logic will never be fully satisfied. And I got one more caution I want to close with. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't say, oh, well, all right, we just can't know. Fine. Why bother? Why study? 
Oh, no, 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 no. My third caution is don't ever stop asking God for greater understanding. There's the things that he's revealed. I'm going to spend my lifetime understanding better the things that are revealed. I want to pray like the psalmist. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. And I want to study God's word with a learner spirit. Listen to me. Don't come to the Bible already knowing what you believe and just looking for verses to prove it. If you want to play that game, then there's, there's a crowd that can stand over here and point to all these whosoever will verses and win. And there's a crowd that can stand over here and point to all the sovereignty of God and election verses and win. And they're both a group of losers. I want to stand right here in the tension of biblical balance of both. Because that breeds arrogance and that breeds arrogance. And right here is more likely to fuel humility and wonder and worship. Keep asking God to give greater understanding. Don't give up. Don't give up. And so as I close, let me point out two extremes that I hope you'll avoid as you wrestle your way through this doctrine or any difficult doctrine. Don't just give up. Throw out your hands and say, well, whatever then. So what? Why even try? It's just a big mystery. But also, don't clench your fists. And pound your theological table. And say, God, I must know. And it must make absolute sense to me. Or I will not submit to it. As a church family, I want us to hold just as tightly to both ends of this theological rope called salvation. And when you do you'll end up having to step out of the light of what you see clearly and understand and over into some of the shadow of some mystery. And mystery feeds wonder. And wonder fuels worship and praise because you'll say salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God, we thank you for salvation. We thank you For the end of the salvation rope that we can relate to. Repentance and faith and trust. And and, and when our heart leaped with with the knowledge of the gospel and the beauty of Christ. Thank you for that end of the rope. But we also thank you for the end that we never would have figured out on our own. That humbles us. That befuddles us. That stretches us. Lord, our goal is not to win an argument and build a system. It's to live all out for Jesus Christ and to lift up a savior and a sovereign God and to submit to whatever your word says even when we bump up against mystery. And as we spend our lives here on the edges of your ways, may we still delight in what you're showing us of who you are. And God, we say to you, oh, how we long for the day when we'll see you face to face. And know as we are known, we love you. We will follow you. We will live for you. We will tell others about what you've done in giving your son. And we pray in his name, amen.